Oh God, oh God, I need you. Oh God, oh God, how I need you. I want to welcome you back to the bench this morning. As we come to the bench, let's look again at these words from Proverbs chapter 4. Let's say them together. Here we go. Guard your heart more than anything else because the source of your life flows from it. Guard your heart more than anything else for the very source of all of your life flows from it. If you're wondering what N-O-G-B stands for, that's Names of God Bible. It's a translation. But I love that. I love what that says. Guard your heart. So welcome to the bench. If we're going to sit on a bench with Jesus, it means that Jesus is no doubt going to talk to us about the things we don't want to talk about. How hard it is to guard your heart in the world we live in. Last week I told you that my sister Carol and I had renewed our annual birthday ritual that really never happens annually, but happens when we can make it happen. And So, I don't know, maybe we should do it again in three months just so we can do two annual things in one year or something. But my brother and I also renewed an annual thing that we haven't done in four years, which is every May we go fishing together. And really it's quite simple. We do, we, we involve basically three things, and that is we sleep, we eat, and then we fish, and then we press repeat. We sleep, we eat, and we fish. And we do that, and it's, it's kind of great because you know, no one would want to hang out with us for those days, I'm just telling you. It's, we just kind of do our thing, and we, just, you know, we smell like fish because we're with fish all day long. It's just one of those things. But one of the questions that always comes to my mind whenever I catch a fish and I'm holding a fish, which is not as often as my brother, unfortunately. He's a much better fisherman than me. Fishing is a blast. Catching is an added benefit. If you don't know that, don't go fishing. But one of the things I always ask myself is, we say things like this. We say, fish are smart. And I always ask myself, do we really believe that? Are fish really Smart? We'll come back to that question. But let's talk about a word. It's a word that um, is actually much more popular than we know. It's a Greek word, and it's the word harmatia. See it up there. You can say it with me. Harmatia. Here we go. Harmatia. And that was your Greek lesson for today. All right? You never know where this word shows up. In fact, it showed up, Trevor, I hate to tell you this, but it showed up in an article about the general manager of the New York Yankees. His name is Brian Cashman. And, and it talked about the fact that this was the reason why they've done so poorly because this was his flaw. Let me unpack that a little more. 
This is an old word. In fact, 400 years before the New Testament, it was Aristotle who made this word popular. And, and for Aristotle, when he used this word, he used it to describe the fatal flaw, the, most, the major flaw of humankind. It was 400 years later when people like the Apostle Paul and Peter and, and John and James and even Jesus repurposed this word to describe the fatal flaw. This is how Jesus put it. Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave, the hamartia, is a slave to sin. I just said it. I said the S word. You see, the Bible is very honest about what some call the underbelly of sin in the world. It's a word that's kind of gone out of vogue. So, so we're not as maybe honest or, or open as the Bible is about it, so not so much. I actually thought about retitling this message to Resurrecting Sin from the Dead. Because in our culture, it's really become dead. This ancient idea, which is actually critical to following Jesus, has become something of a social reject that we don't want to maybe discuss, but yet we just sang how sin threatens our very lives. You see, the evidence from all of time is in, the evidence in what sin creates, and Scripture is clear, sin is fatal. Now, search the Bible for the idea of sin. And closely connected to it, you're going to find death. So sin is fatal. James chapter 1 reads this way. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Isn't that interesting play on reversing the order of birth and death? Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Now, our temptation, pun intended, our temptation in talking about sin is to do this. It's to reduce the idea of sin to this bad, sinful world we live in. And we point our finger out there. When I said that sin leads to death, many of you are going like this, yes. When I, when I began to describe sin, we're going like this, and we immediately begin to think Right, you know, that world of ours, that culture of ours, that fill-in-the-blank of this world is so sinful. The world needs to be saved. 
And there's truth in that. But you see, what we want to avoid is we want to avoid talking about the S word in us. We want to avoid that conversation. So before we reduce this finger to pointing a finger at our world, we maybe need to point the finger in a different direction. Sin, as the fatal flaw, is serious. It's so serious that Jesus went to the cross and carried that fatality to the cross, our fatality to the cross. This is what it says in 1 Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It is serious, serious business. But one of the other mistakes we make is we we begin to think about this idea of sin. And I'm going to unpack that idea a little bit more here. But we begin to think about the idea of sin. And what we do is we think about the devil's attacks on us in terms of personal attacks. Now, I, I preach with this given. And the given is this, that we believe there's actually a force, a being, who wants our ill will. Who wants to undo us, as Martin Luther said in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He wants to undo us. But oftentimes we think about him like going to each one of our neighborhoods or our homes or our hearts, individually attacking. But here's my question. Temptation is very personal, but why would the devil focus on such a small target as just me when he can much more effectively devour many with a different strategy? It's like what Peter says. He wants to devour. He's looking for anyone to devour. He's looking for many to devour. He's going up to and fro and about. See, the devil has a very specific attack plan. And the devil's attack plan is to appeal to disordered desires. And the way he does that is through ideas and thinking. Ideas that appeal to disordered desires. See, if I want to destroy an enemy, I'm not going to pick on individuals. I'm going to try to figure out how to influence the whole. How can I lay a trap for the largest amount of people? See, some of these kind of things we have to bring to the bench. James 1.14 says this. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And so you see, here's the challenge. The challenge is a world filled with disordered desires. So what does that mean? Well, it means that disordered desires are celebrated as normal. They're pursued as desirable, and they're viewed as liberating. Here's the creed. 
Here's the creed. Be it with money, sex, power, relationships, here's the creed. You do you. You do you. And in that kind of thinking, rightly ordered desires become sin, if I could say that. Rightly ordered desires become the enemy. When the prevailing thought, the prevailing idea is you do you, you do whatever you want. Well, as I said, my brother George and I renewed our striped bass fishing weekend. We fish from a kayak most of the time, but we also fish from a pier. We, we fish on the shore, and we go wading into a canal, and we catch these beautiful, beautiful fish. But I ask that question again. We say that fish are smart, but do we really mean that? I mean, think about it. We take a hook and we put something that smells awful, that tastes worse, that looks terrible. We put it on a hook. Now, it smells awful and tastes terrible. I guess maybe not to a fish or to people who eat really bad smelly cheese. Those two groups maybe like things that smell bad and taste bad. But we do that and we put that on a hook and a fish gets it and we go, that fish is smart. We're even worse than that. We, we use something else. We use what we call fishing lures. They're not even real. Right? I mean, look at these. They're pretty. Right? This one is, does this look like a frog to you? I mean, it's a frog from the 60s with a hair design there, but, you know, this... This isn't a frog. This looks like a frog. It's supposed to be a frog. And this, this is a spinning lure. Believe it or not, you put this in there, this thing spins around. But look at that. Look at it's It's so pretty, right? But here's the deal. Wrapped inside that beauty is a massive hook. And we say fish are smart. We use stuff like that, stuff that smells and stuff that's not even real. And time after time after time, a fish goes after it. Why? Because the fish acts out of animal instinct, not out of God-given agency. The fish's desire so-called, is self-survival. Its motives are driven by appetites. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. The younger brother of Jesus, James, uses fishing language to describe what happens when our desires are disordered. The Greek word is ezeko, 
It means to be dragged away. We are lured from the safety of self-restraint, ordered desire, to sin, disordered appetite. You see, if we don't begin to think about it in these terms, we're never going to take sin seriously. We're either going to blame the world for being sinful, or we're going to equate sin with words like mistakes. Well, they made a mistake. Well, sin is a mistake, but it can be a fatal mistake. It's important that we remember that. It's important that we think in terms of desire. Now, there's a reason for this disorder, and its root is found in the words 316. Now, when we think of the words in the church, we think of the words 316, what do we think about? We think about John 316, right? The most famous Bible verse of all. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. We need to say amen to that. Right? Or maybe you've been reading your Bible and you discovered that 1 John 3.16 says something very similar. Look at this one. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's what happens when we realize how Jesus laid down his life for us. We then begin to lay down our lives for him. We go, yes. In these words, we breathe a sigh of relief because what we see is the self-donation of God for us. Praise God. But I did say the disorder of sin finds its root in 3.16. And that's James 3.16. Look what it says. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Just think on that. Where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder in every evil practice. Do you see how James 3.16 is the exact opposite posture of that which God displays in John 3.16. This is not a self-donated life, but a self-referenced life. Now, when I talk about the self, I'm not speaking about the wonder of our humanity. I'm not talking about the beauty and value of our personhood. I'm not talking about that intrinsic beauty of being made in the image of God when I talk about the self, I'm not talking about self-loathing or self-hatred. That itself is disordered. Rather, we're talking about staring in the face of what generates the greatest disorder in life. We are talking about what every major world religion refers to as the fatal flaw in life. Did you know that? Every world religion. Some refer to it as the ego. Others refer to it, other religions refer to it as the false self. Some refer to it as the animal brain. The Bible calls it sin. 
Ego says, I am always right and you are wrong. Ego is always easily offended and is blind to how we offend. The false self must protect the perceived identity versus authentic being. So it has to protect some kind of false self. The animal brain says this, the heart, the heart wants what it wants and the heart gets what it wants. And I will have it. With the animal brain, there's no ethics to guide. Only appetites to be satisfied. And sin always turns in one direction, which is away from God and others. That's why we need to talk about this at the bench. That's why Jesus, when we sit and talk with him, when we're really going to be honest in a relationship with Jesus, it's never always going to be how wonderful we are. Sometimes when we read the Bible, when we get in relationship with God, he's going to talk to us about the stuff we don't want to talk about. I don't know about you, but there's stuff in my life that I prefer not to, not to deal with. Those things happen. But then they come. Jesus convicts me. That's what he said. He said the Holy Spirit will convict of sin and judgment and righteousness. The Holy Spirit comes and says, you know, Jeff, I'm not so sure that those were the best words to use. You know, Jeff, that attitude. You know, Jeff, the way you're seeing that person. In the self-reference world, it's always someone else's problem. But Jesus wants to take it so much deeper than that. In a self-referential life, my friends, when we're so self-referenced as we're encouraged to celebrate, this is the danger. Even our relationship with God can become more about us and what we want than about him and his ways. Right? We've got to be careful. When I begin to build relationship and religion around what it is that I want and about me when it's all about me and not about him and his ways. One of the greatest theologians in all the history of the church is the man that we call Augustine. Some people properly say it's Augustine. I prefer the Augustine pronunciation. Augustine defines sin with a Latin phrase, and Martin Luther followed up, incurvitus in sea. And it simply means to be turned or curved inward on oneself rather than outward towards others or towards God. In other places, he said it's basically a willful redirection. You know, it's a redirection of focus. Redirect. A redirection of love away from God away from God, and, and the result of that is 
alienation from God. And he went on to say also the fracturing of human society. And again, before we point the finger out there, maybe we need to point the finger into our own relationships first because that's where society actually finds its heart. Paul Cedar said this, sin never adds quality to our lives. I love that statement. It ultimately subtracts from our love. So, so what do we do? You say, well, Pastor Jeff, on this gloomy Sunday morning, this is a bit heavy. I actually thought about bringing some weights from home and saying, we're going to lift weights today <laughs> for the soul. Well, here's the good news. Right after this portion of Scripture in James, we find optimism for a rightly ordered soul. Verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. I think when James was writing this, he went, dude, that was heavy. I better put in something else. <laughs> Probably not, but. So what do we do? We face the truth of sin with a view to the optimism of grace. We face the truth of sin with the optimism of grace, the good and perfect gift. Optimism for change that is grounded in our good and gracious God and the gift of the perfect grace and mercy of God in Jesus. He not only wants to forgive us, but he wants to transform us at the point of desire. He wants to deliver us. He wants to make us new. The term for that is that term, sanctification. He wants to cleanse us. Isn't that a good feeling? Isn't that a good thought? He does want to cleanse us of our guilt of our sins, but also he wants to cleanse us from this reference point that's focused solely on ourselves. And I think that's what Jesus would say to us on the bench. He's not going to force us, but he invites us to welcome him to the bench to find forgiveness for our sinful choices, to cleanse us of our sinful attitudes, and to right-reference the self. From a self-referenced self to a Christ-centered, others-oriented self. Here's more good news. I love these words. These are some of the first words, believe it or not, I, re I, I recited as a Christian in a Navy yard on a, on a forklift. And I, I think I probably told you this before. I, I created a song for this verse of Scripture. I'm sure there were some other people in that warehouse who said, what is that God-awful sound coming from the corner of the warehouse? And the translation I learned it in is a little older, but it, you know, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And then this one, this song. No temptation has seized me except what is common 
That translation said man, but the real meaning of the word is people. No temptation has seized me except what is common to everyone. And God is faithful. He will not let me be tempted beyond what I can bear. But when I am tempted, God will provide a way out that I may stand up under it. Don't learn that song. Just, just learn the verse. Right? No temptation has seized you except what is common to everyone. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But he will also provide a way out that you might stand up under it. What is the way out? How do we avoid the lure? One word. Love. Love. Probably the most misused word in our world, in our culture. Augustine went on and said, the basic problem of the human condition is that of disordered desires or loves. Humans were created in love and for love, so we're lovers first and thinkers second. And we get that all twisted up. We're lovers first, and then we're thinkers. That's the order. That's the way it's supposed to be. Why did Jesus say that the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And the second is like the first, love your neighbor. He didn't say, think about God. And he didn't say, think about your neighbor. He said, love them. Now, hear me. Remember what I said way back, the devil's key strategy is ideas. He wants us to get ideas in our mind that are disordered about God, about people, and about ourselves. So the path to find the place, the way out, if you will, of that temptation is love. How does that work? Well, unfortunately, we, we recently lost a saint in the church that I think is a big loss for the church. His name's Tim Keller. And he just, Pastor Keller recently died. Love the way he took on life. He stood up in the midst of the secular world and the church and declared truth. He said this, real freedom, that's a word we've kind of screwed up in our world, Real freedom comes from a strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain others. It is not the absence of constraints, but it is choosing the right constraints and the right freedoms to lose. And you see, that's why the answer is love. Love chooses the right constraints. I have chosen constraints in my marriage to Kathleen. Why? I've chosen constraints as a father. There's all kinds of things I could have done or could do with my life. I've chosen constraints in my life as a pastor. Why? Because of love. Because of love. That's why it's the key. 
1 John chapter 2 says, those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we're living for him. It's about loving him. And that's why what we love is really important. It goes on in 1 John chapter 2. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but they are from the world. What are those things? Those things are allure to drag us away. And by the way, that word that James uses to describe that is a violent word. It's an act of violence on the soul that drags us away. But the heart is the place where we hold what we love. And what we love feeds our desires. So here's the deal. There's no... There's no secret ingredient. You're not going to find the Bible app that has the right devotional for this. Now, don't walk out of here saying, wow, Pastor Jeff said I don't have to do devotions. That's what he heard, yeah. Great. Got to preach a sermon next week on doing devotions. Undo everything I said today. That, you know. But here's what I want you to get. There, there's no... There's no silver bullet here. There's no like instant fix. We must turn to God. I'm weighing out what the bench is going to say to us next week right now. and We may end up talking about that a little bit, about what repentance actually means. I'm not sure yet, but we need to be confessing the reality of our hearts. We need to go to the bench and sit with Jesus and talk about what we don't want to talk about. Right now, I want you to think about what you don't want to talk about that's in your soul. What you're denying. What is that? Whatever that is, that's what you need to have a conversation with Jesus about. So we must confess the reality of our hearts. We must, we must fully and constantly love and trust Jesus. And we must seek to love what he loves. More than anything, we must desire Jesus more than anything. So are there desires that have become disordered, that have crowded out God and others, that have turned yourself onto yourself? <laughs> Remember, encourage us, see, turn toward me. Where there's really good news and the good news in this is this. If we claim we have no sin, we are fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness or from all unrighteousness. 
He's going to deal with the choices we make because we're curved in on ourselves. And he's going to cleanse the curve itself. To bend it up to God and out to others and in a right way to ourselves. Well, that's a lot today from the bench. Holy smokes. But this is what we do know when we let our worship team come. That song we sang before we prayed, Oh God, how I need you now, right? What do you think? Should we sing that song again or should we do the other one? What do you want to do? I think we should sing that song again. We're, we're going to sing, I need you now, but I, I think we should go back to this saying, God, because track the history of the song when you're singing it today. It, it's tracking the history of a faithful God. And when I start looking deep inside of the things I don't want to look into, you know what? I really need him. How I need you now, God. And it's up to you. The beautiful thing about God is God is a gentleman and he's never going to force his way with any of us. It's now up to us to say, okay, God, I need you now right in this place in my life. Confess, Scripture says, means speak the same thing as God. Be in agreement with God. Confess. He'll cleanse. He'll forgive. But it requires us to step and sit on the bench with him and turn to him and ask him to do that for us. Let's stand together sing. So before you leave here today, what do you need to tell God? And maybe you want to come and join one who's come, and before you leave, you just want to talk to the Lord. You want to come and kneel, and just talk to the Lord before you go. But what do you want to say to God in your heart right now? Let's just pray for a minute.
Hear our prayers, O God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, you're dismissed.